If you're not, we'll go ahead and Jack will, Jack will open us in prayer and then we'll jump in in Psalm 1. Says, "Your God be merciful to us, bless us, and cause His face to shine upon us." Thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Thank you for today. Thank you for being the house of the Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for today, for His uh, willingness and eagerness to uh, bring the word to us. Thank you again for your blessings, and I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and open uh, this morning with Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And hopefully you'll figure out why I picked Psalm 1 this morning as we move through our uh, teaching in Ephesians. Psalm 1. Whoever gets there first and would like to read it out, please do so. interesting that uh, the book of Psalms opens with a, a contrast of righteousness, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And I, I choose the way of um, to because that's the language that's used here. It's, talking, it's active. It's talking about um, how one lives their life. In other words, uh, blessed is the man who does not live his life in the counsel of the wicked nor in the path of sinners, nor in the seat of scoffers. So you see active words here, walk, stand, sit, that um, we understand um, spatially, so we get spatial references here, but really what it's doing is is it's bringing uh, what is on the inside to your ethical behavior on the outside, right? So we understand that there is this contrast of righteousness and wickedness, and it's appropriate that the book of Psalms would start out with this and that it would actually have an ethical perspective. So last week we talked about uh, ethics as we moved into the second part of our study in Ephesians. Does anybody remember how uh, I indicated Ephesians was organized? Or anybody like to offer insights on Ephesians today? You guys are, must not have had your coffee this morning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it seems, seems like there was a walk, sit, stand. Yes, there's a walk, sit, stand. So you see a similar type um, focus in, uh, let me go, go to the home here. So I, I capture um, 
Paul's main thesis as uh, the section that we're in this morning, which is chapter 4, verse 1, that we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling uh, in which you have been called. And Paul's organization is um, threefold, essentially, um, that we need to know who we are in Christ, and so he does a, a, a very extensive theological uh, lesson on who, what our identity is in Christ, who, who God is, his graciousness, his, his character, what he has done for us in Christ, and who we are in Christ as Christians. And then the section we're in now is about how we um, behave as a result of that revelation. Right, so the first part is more theological. In a sense, you had in a sense you had your student hat on. Now you're going to put your your application hat on, and this is how you live in the world, and and that would be walking as children of light. And then finally, what we know is the case for all Christians is that your faith will be challenged. We know that because the Bible tells us we have an adversary. So an adversary is an accuser. Right? He's going to um, accuse us or question um, that which we hold to be true and that which we have placed our faith in. So we're going to have to make a stand. And, and Paul talks about that uh, at the end of Ephesians. So that's kind of his overall uh, architecture for this letter. But as we move down, as, as Tim pointed out, there is this active... Uh, organization to it. Sit, walk, stand. Just as we read through in Psalm 1, there's this active uh, expectation that this is how you live, not just what you think, and such that we uh, understand our position in Christ and we walk uh, in Christ in the world and finally we take a stand. So we went through Ephesians, and I'm not going to go through all of it this morning, um, but we talked about what the uh, essence of salvation is, and we focused in in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Put my bookmark here in Galatians, Ephesians. So when we were in Ephesians, we looked uh, specifically um, about God's intention towards his creation. We see that in chapter (coughs) 1. And I'll go ahead and read the uh, theological organizational piece that Paul puts in in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, in Christ. So God's intention is to bless us. He wants to bless his creation. And the way that he goes about doing this is through his son, Christ. It says, just as he chose us in him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So that uh, God's intention in blessing us is that we would be holy and blameless, because then we can be in relationship with him. Just as he is holy, we are to be holy, right? That that's the, the uh, key to relationship is holiness, And that that's an internal state as well as an external behavior. So it affects us in our our moral seat, but it also affects us in our ethical uh, stance in the world. It says, in love he predestined us 
to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. So we see now the redemptive act of God, because uh, as he created us, he knew there, there are no surprises for God, right? He knows the end from the beginning. That's what we read about uh, the omniscience of God in uh, Isaiah. So that means that there was no surprise when Adam and Eve chose to rebel and not obey, and even though it meant death, right? So um, we can't claim ignorance, um, even though we may have been ignorant. We were deceived, but there were some that weren't deceived. We know that, that the battle in the heavenlies, um, outside of this earthly domain, um, there was full understanding of, of what was happening in the rebellion. But maybe not so with us. But nonetheless, he chose to redeem us. And it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So Paul's saying that, that the whole redemptive act of God is a result of his character of, of graciousness. We understand that he is gracious and that that grace results or it, we observe that in his love and his redemptive work on our behalf. And it says that he lavished this grace upon us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, that is Christ, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. <clears throat> so we, un- we understand that <clears throat> that long complex sentence <clears throat> is about how Christ is um, the focus of everything, right? That not only is he, and we read about this in, in other letters, like Colossians, where he is not only the creator uh, and the sustainer, but he is the purpose for which God uh, intended all of creation to come to, and that we would understand that as the uh, administration of a king. And they actually uses the words administration in here, and that Jesus is, is Lord not only in the heavens, but also on the earth over all of creation. And that that was a mystery that was not necessarily understood from the beginning. So the angels didn't necessarily know God's full purpose as he was bringing out his creation and his his redemptive work. But we see that uh, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Again, you see the... um, the omniscience of God and the loving kindness of God, they call that kesed, in the, that's the Hebrew word for that, which captures that um, heart of God towards his creation, um, that they would be with him where he is. Right? And Jesus even said that. He said, I'm going away, but I'm going away to p- prepare a place for you so that you can be with me where I am. Remember that from John chapter 14? That's that loving kindness as like a groom would have towards his bride, a tender care to um, make everything right such that that relationship can be just joyously sweet, right? That's what's going on here. 
and it says that uh, we've obtained this inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So this was his intention from the beginning. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So this is a huge uh, theological piece that we unpacked uh, several weeks back. But I, I read it again because I want to give you that theological view that Paul is coming in with, what the lesson is that he wants us to understand and how rich that is. And that not only have we been redeemed, but we weren't redeemed to just kind of stay the way that we are. right? So when God saved us, that's like being born. In fact, the language of birth is used. It's talking about that you were born again. You're a new creation. Well, what happens when a baby is born? Immediately starts growing, right? And the intent is not to remain a baby, but to grow up, to mature. And that's that, what we understand is that, that salvation is such that we can grow up in Christ to do good works. In fact, he even says that when... He talks in chapter 2 about the very nature of our salvation. So when we got to chapter 2, we unpacked the evangelical message of Paul, his message of, um, of how we're saved. And we read in chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved. So it's the grace of God that brings about our salvation. This is a character of God. It's part of who he is. And that through faith, we understand that there's a relationship between um, God's working in our life and our response to that revelation of God by means of the Holy Spirit to us. And that's what's before you here in the salvation order that I have on the screen. And it says, that's not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So it isn't a, a legal system where you can earn your way, right? It's all about who God is. He already did this for you. And it says, uh, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So the whole purpose, like I say, baby isn't just born to remain a baby, but to grow up. To grow up and actually be like Christ. To actually imitate who he is. And um, Tim pointed this out in... Chapter 5 of Ephesians, he was reading ahead, which is a good thing, because you're supposed to have read it several times by now. It says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the whole point of this maturity, of this ethical stance of Paul, is so that we'll grow up, that we'll mature, and that our ethic in the world will be rooted in our morality of which the standard is God's righteousness itself. Yes. So I have a question that we haven't got done with the monologue yet. So sorry. <laughs> Go for it. Break, I, break the monologue. But I'm thinking of uh, verse ten that you just read. Um, yep. And I understand the whole the well. I sort of understand that we were, you know, created in that we were saved by grace for good works. Yep. But then the last part is where I have the question, which God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Yes. Them the works. 
Yes. Okay, so how how are the works prepared beforehand? And how do we, I mean, I, I guess that part of it just struck me like... Well, <clears throat> think of Psalm 139. So, what is Psalm 139? This is a David talking about how God knows him, right? That before he was born, before um, he was, while he was still in his, his mother's womb, God knew him. And that even the thoughts and words on his tongue are um, God-ordained, for me to paraphrase it. In other words, God knew it, um, it doesn't catch him by surprise, and there will be specific opportunities in David's life where he will have the opportunity to um, be in communion with God in such a way that it reflects God in, the, in, in, in his creation, in the world. And David understood that, that he wasn't king by his own power. He was king because God ordained that for him. He, he uh, prepared beforehand that he should walk in a good work. And all of us, every single one of us, have a purpose in God's plan. So, so actually you can read this sort of paraphrase that, that God created us for a certain good work, specifically. Yeah. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, so when, when God uh, created the world and he created uh, man and woman and he created what you read the creation account chapter 1 it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Oh, hey, this was very good. And the reason why is because he put um, the creation, as we understand it on earth, um, as a delegated responsibility. Care for that creation was a delegated responsibility of this place in creation, humanity, these people. And so God intended from the very beginning that we would have a very special role and relationship, both with him and with each other, and with all of creation, right? So, so he did create us for a good work. So then the natural follow-up is how do we know what the good work is we're supposed to be doing? Ah, well, there was a movement a few years back called What Would Jesus Do, <laughs> right? And people got a little wristband and stuff like that. Yeah. What was that movement about? It was in trying. Steps. Pardon? In his steps. I'm just looking at a book. Is he the guy that started? Pardon? A book called In His Steps. Yes. And you know, it's actually really good. Yes. Okay. <laughs> because there's a lot of lot of on the wristband thing. Oh yeah, because and then it get got it got twisted and turned and but the idea, the the original idea was that we should look at how Jesus, not as a, a guru or a good man or a great ethical teacher, but as who he is as Savior, that he poured himself out as a servant to take the sin of the world upon himself because he loves us that much. Um, what would he do in any given situation? And so I get asked this question all the time because the Bible is not a rule book of, uh, of how you should live. See, we, we want all these rules. So we want a checklist so that we know we can check it and say, no, I did it according to the letter of the law, right? But it, I don't find a lot of law that, that is around how I live my, my day. 
There are actually very few fundamental laws. And Jesus was asked, what is the greatest? What was his response? Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your might. Right? And that, that's the great Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel from uh, Deuteronomy. And those of us that are going to go to Israel will we'll recite that on the bus every morning. And then the second is like it, right? To love your neighbor as yourself, right? It was, he was pulling that out of Leviticus, which is another treatise on the law. So he was helping us to interpret the law in our daily life. He was telling us what Jesus would do. Well, since there aren't any practical steps for me, which I'm still looking for. Yep. Yep. <laughs> no, you know, Tim, do this. Do, do this job. Do this. You know, buy this. Do uh-huh. this for, you know, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. That is there. So I figured that out. Um, <laughs> but I want to share with you one answer that I heard recently at Missions Connection. Okay. okay. So this is Bob Goff, uh, one of the speakers there. Uh, he's an attorney and what have you. He would say, love does, you know, do love. Right. And if you don't know where to start, start with the least of these. So start with the people that you would most likely run away from. Right. Start with them. You know, so this is uh, whatever, um, which I tend to run away from, right? But, you know, all the, the, you know, people under the bridge and the prostitutes and the drunkards, you know, all that stuff. Right. Um, that's what he said. So is it limited um, to those that are the least? Because we understand that... No, but it's that the hardest place, maybe. It, it might be. It might be that the hardest place is at home. For some. Because I would say that it's much easier for some to run after helping someone outside of their home than to pour out their life for their wife or for their children. I, I have an example of that in my wife's family. She reminds me of her godly grandfather who, um, through his total involvement with others, neglected a relationship with his son. And as a result of that, his son, um, when he passed into eternity, there's a question, did he know the Lord? Right? Which actually disqualifies him as a leader of the church, so... You're right, you got to start at home. Right, so, so, so what, what is it that brings life, right? What is it that brings us into relationship with God? How do we align? How do we get in accord with him? And how does that uh, vertical connection translate horizontally in the community? And the community can be very close and it can be very far. And we need to not neglect either. And that the Lord will give us opportunity to do good works, which he has before we were even born, created for us. We don't know what they are, and you're right, there's a lot of gray. If, if there was not gray, where would be faith? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the Lord, just like we do when our children are growing up and, and they're making a misstep and fall and skin their knee, and we rush over to pick them up, the Lord does the same thing for us. If in our... Um, intent to walk as he walks uh, if we fall he will guide our step that's what the psalms tell us right this is a loving kind god that is our father who touches us in our heart with his very spirit right that's that's pretty amazing so 
you know, when we struggle with what is that good work, I would say, look around you. What is immediate and what is the Holy Spirit picking your heart about today? So not what he's going to pick your heart about tomorrow. Just pay attention to what's going on today. What, and, and in the case of going to Mission Connection, the Lord picked your heart, right? So maybe you needed to look up instead of looking down. I don't know. I, I have no idea. I just know that God is continually at work for the purpose of perfecting us. We read that in... Uh, for perfecting the good work. That's what we read in Philippians, right? Chapter 1, verse 6. So, as we move through, we understand that God is purposeful in that, and we got through, and I'm just going to quickly rush you through, as I've been doing, and I don't mean to recapture the whole of the world here, um, but let's, uh, let's take a look. So we went through the doxology, which I just read through, uh, the Thanksgiving prayer that followed that, and I'd be glad to share these notes with anybody. Uh, Paul's salvation theology, which is um, his message of uh, new life in Christ, union with Christ, and what that means from the church's perspective. So there is this thing called the church. There is Christ's body. And um, that body is not based on your religion uh, in the sense of Jew or or. Uh, Greek or Baptist or Episcopalian or Catholic, and so some would say Catholic. Are there Christians in the Catholic Church? Yes, there are Christians in the Catholic Church. It, because it's an inside condition, not an external thing. Now, some people like uh, a very liturgical way of worshiping, and I will say that my daughter does. So she grew up with me, and I've been more from a different generation that was, you know, I really want to connect with uh, in a different way. And liturgy was kind of offensive to me when I was growing up. But she likes high church, right? So she's currently in the Episcopalian church. And, uh, and yet, I know her heart is after Christ. So it doesn't matter your religion, it doesn't matter your race, it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Greek. Your question? No, I was just going to Oh, okay. Um, and that's what that union with Christ is all about, right? So he wanted us to understand that. So he starts introducing this idea of the church and we ended last week with uh, a prayer that really challenges us in understanding all of what Paul was presenting in theology and I mentioned that he now turns to uh, the ethical part of his discussion which this is an outline of his introduction to ethics and just as chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 was an outline of his theology uh, that he wants to present, and then he kind of unpacked that as we went through. Uh, and and you can, you know, grab onto specific verses like Martin Luther did, where he said it is by grace that we have been saved. Right? Martin Luther grabbed that and it set him free uh, because he understood that it wasn't um, the mechanics of the liturgy and the worship that saved him but rather Jesus Christ himself, right? So we can latch on to those things, and we will, at different parts in our walk, we'll dwell on different ideas, love, grace, truth, right? Those are, I would ask you, what are the distinctives of Christianity? Not as a religion, 
but as a way of life. What are the distinctives of Christianity? It's a relationship. We understand that it's relational. That's a distinctive of Christianity. So you can't be apart from the least of these. Right, Tim? We can't can't, uh, not care. Mm -hmm. We can't not love because it's relational. And that we aren't separated now by boundaries of of race and place. Right? So those people that are living under the bridge are as important to, to Jesus as the people sitting next to me in the office. Right? And in where I work, it's not too far between the two. Um, so we understand that, or our own family, right? So uh, relationship, how does that express itself? I think through love and serving others. Love? Uh, James gets at it when he says, you say you have faith, fine. I have faith, I'll show it to you by my works. Yep, so, so the idea of service works. The idea of faith. What is another distinctive of Christianity in the world today? So we're in an election year, right? Um, election's going to be this fall, and you're going to hear a whole bunch of stuff. In fact, come Tuesday when they caucus in Iowa, that's all you're going to hear in the news. Um, what is it that the world is looking for that Christianity is distinctly different or about? Well, we have hope. Hope. So we, yes, go ahead. We know, we know that we will stand before the Father. Yep. And so we, our works don't save us. That's right. So we, what you just said is we have hope because of his grace. We have hope because of his love. We have hope because of his truth. So these are distinctives of Christianity. That we would have love, faith, hope, grace, and truth. There may be other distinctives of Christianity as well, but Paul is going to dwell on those five distinctives and how they play themselves out in the world. Just as we love because he first loved us, and we are gracious because he was first gracious towards us, we also behave in the world as Christ behaved in the world. We become imitators of him as Christians, as we grow up, as we mature. And so Paul, uh, as this is, like I say, it's moving from a theological, which is more informative in the language, they call that the indicative voice. Now he's going into an imperative, which is a a command. This This is what you're supposed to do so this is the do's now. So this is what people like. They like to be told what to do. Um, me, I was like, don't tell me what to do. Figure it out myself. But Paul, we're going to read now through uh, the first 16 verses of chapter 4. He says, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Wow. So I mentioned that this, is, this is, uh, has the, the force of a command. The, the change is from uh, the indicative to the imperative, and the imperative <clears throat> is right there in the first verse. He says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So there's emphasis and command associated with this, that we would walk. What does it mean to walk? We were talking about that earlier. It has to do with the way that you live your life. And so, so we distinguished between morality and ethic last week. And some would argue with me, you know, if you go to uh, Wikipedia or if you go to your uh, dictionary of philosophy and you look up ethics, it'll use the word morality. If you go to morality, it'll use the word ethics. Um, And so the two seem to be equivalent. But there is a distinction between the two, and I made that last week. So we were created as moral beings in the image of God. That means we have uh, within us this discerning nature, a discernment about what is right and what is not. What is shalom, that which is according to God's design, and that which is not shalom, which is sin, right? So there is according to God's design, and then anything outside of that, I would say, is not according to God's will. So we have that built into us, and Paul argues that in the first chapter of Romans. He says, everybody's got this. In fact, I'll take you to Romans, and I'll just read it uh, a small little snippet. So as we go through Romans here, Paul says uh, in chapter 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So there's this other idea which is essential to Christianity, truth, right? 
And I'm going to unpack that a little bit here too. It says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. So this is the way God created us. It's internal. It's, it's non-material in the sense that it's the image of God, but it isn't, it isn't the substance of, of molecules and atoms and quarks and those kind of things. It says, for God made it evident to them, this internal revelation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So, yeah, does that mean that's in everybody? Does that mean... That's in everybody? Yes. So, those creates... God God created created everybody a moral creature. Every person. Every human being. So that man is without excuse. So that no, no man can claim, you created me different than everybody else and I don't have a moral compass. <coughs> so God placed within each of us uh, mora- a, a moral content mm-hmm. that is, um, in that sense, it's the image of God. And we also know that because when you go down through chapter 2, he says, uh, in verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles... Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them so we see that this is part of who we are it's essential that moral law uh, that sense of what is right and wrong can be seared to the point however that it becomes an effective in us Yes, so, so we are created as moral beings, but now what do we use as the, uh, the alignment of our compass? The world. That can happen. That can so that's that searing part that's being discovered. So, so think of it as, okay, we are a compass. We are going to point. We are going to determine a direction. But what is, what is the, uh, the heart of your compass? Is it true north? You can take a magnet and you can change the way a compass behaves. You can sear its conscience. Right? And that's, that is possible. But it doesn't mean that you're not moral. It just means that the standard of your morality has been exchanged for another standard. What happened in the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve were saying, I want a different standard. And that standard would be what I determined is right and wrong. Now this is an oversimplification. But nonetheless, you can see that from the very beginning, the attack was at the root of this moral part of the human creation, the image of God. It was twisted and distorted and seared and turned. And that what happens is, is that your ethic, the way that your will expresses your morality in the world, your ethic is based upon the alignment of your compass. If your moral compass is skewed, the way that you behave, your ethic is going to be skewed. Which is why you can have people that will sign a statement of ethic, like as I'm a professional engineer, so I'm registered with the state, I'm licensed to uh, review um, plans that are within the scope of my expertise, and I'm able to stamp it and say, this is approved. I have an authority associated with my registration. 
And part of my registration is I have to first, before I even show any technical competency, I have to show an agreement with an ethic. So I have to um, have specific training around engineering ethics, and I have to pass a test to show that I'm an ethical engineer, right? When there are challenges to a professional engineer's uh, practice, the way that he behaves in the world, a lot of those challenges are around the ethic and not the competency in engineering. And they can revoke your license. Medical practice has the same thing. In fact, any profession will have a statement of ethic. You may have it in, in your work or some other context. I have it in spades because I'm also in the Army. So I'm an Army engineer, and as a result of that, I got the Army's ethic, I've got my engineering ethic, and I've got uh, other ethics. Well, the ethic for me that is the most important, the overriding way that I'm going to behave in the world, and this is kind of to your question, Tim, how do I know how to behave? How do I know how to act? Um, what should be the alignment of my will? It's going to be according to the alignment of my moral compass. And that moral compass, as Paul spent a lot of time helping us understand, our identity is Christ. It's all about him in the heavens and in the earth. That there is none that are going to stand apart from him. That's what God intended from the very beginning. So, uh, this has actually helped me some. Um, and I want to kind of share a little bit of what I'm just getting from this. <laughs> okay. Maybe somebody else will benefit from So, to me, 4 1 to 2 are just killers. You know, I mean, because I look at myself <laughs> and I say, ah, you could do better. You know, I could always do better. Um, but the fact that you have um, in your very first thing, Mark, we're in the you know, manner of what you would call keeping the unity of the spirit. Okay, so that last part actually incorporates the next few verses. Yes. Okay, and I've never really thought of it that way, but really Paul is writing to a church. He's yes. not necessarily writing to an individual, and I read it as an individual. Right. So, but when you think of it corporately, for example, let's take this room, for example. Okay, um, and let's say that we did what Bob Goff says and start, start with the least of these. Okay, so let's say we go down under the bridge in Portland and, and see, my gifts and abilities, I can organize the thing pretty well, but when I'm talking to a dude, I'm going to say, hey, just, just shut up and take a shower, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, you know, stop drinking. What's, what's up with this drugs thing, you know? I mean... I, I probably don't have as much empathy as I know others do in this room. But if we went as a class down, then now we're using different assets and abilities, and now we can probably service that way better than any of us individually could. That is absolutely true. So, and I, I guess I haven't thought of it this way, but, you know, and then you can even get bigger. Sorry, I think weird like this. You can say, well, really, it's talking about all Christians. And so Brush Prairie could do something, but we could do something with 
church down the road and do the job way better. You know, and really, you know, corporately, uh, and you can look at it the whole world if you want, we as Christians, if we work together, we can multiply this unbelievably. Yes. So, if we really did have unity of spirit, you know, um, you know, one Lord, one faith, but one baptism, look at all the stuff we can do better mm-hmm. that we're not doing. I mean, because individually, even as a church or as individuals, we do a couple things, you know, we do whatever we think, you know, in our sphere of influence makes sense, but we could do way better if we worked together. So. Absolutely. That's and sometimes that's why it's even stuff. harder, though, to do something. It's, sometimes it's easier to go out there and do yeah. something to that poor person, and the harder thing is go two houses down in my neighborhood and do something for the widow that's living there. Right. i got to take time for that. Or to talk to my other neighbor who's an atheist, you know, and build a relationship with him and try to... And sometimes it's harder in my workplace. How do I be a different employee? That's harder for me. It's easier... Yes. <laughs> to go to a stranger well, than my own family. So now you're getting at the language of the calling with which you have been called. Yeah, and, and you have to ask how, how we doing. I mean, yeah. how are we? You know, have, have you talked to that neighbor? Have you, have yeah. You... Can I show you? Yeah, yeah. I just, <clears throat> where we come from, Tim, I've been down there too, a couple of times where we're right at. And, uh, you know, dude, you look at these guys. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and go out and get a job, clean yourself up. That's what I see. Who would want to be living that under the bridge? Right. And, you know, it just doesn't, to me, it doesn't compute. But, like I say, to go down to your neighbor and build a relationship and, you know, kind of witness to him, you don't need to bother him. But uh, it's, that's a lot harder than going down under the bridge because it's impersonal. And, and it's always easier to throw out some bread than to sit with someone and figure out how, in the place that God has put them, they can be fed. Right. Tasha? Yeah, just to kind of piggyback off of what Tim was talking about and give some, like, an example of shoe leather. Um, we've been talking about this exact thing in, in young adults, and um, what we some of us are starting to do is in community, reaching out to our neighbors, reaching out to our, uh, you know, whoever it is in your life that week or that day, or um, we're doing, like, there's couples that are having dinner together, but then we're inviting in, um, you know, Josh's co-worker that doesn't know the Lord, so that now we're coming together to reach out to these, to, to, to people that need Jesus, but we're doing it together. You know, and um, it's hard. Yeah, it's harder to coordinate. It's harder, you know, whatever. But um, it's it like I think that it's because some may be gifted in this, some may be gifted in this, some can host, some can't, and you know, just real. What are we doing this week to walk it out, to live, and to you know, to because we're all given some kind of. What I've been chewing on is we're all given some kind of gospel. Everybody is. Yep. Everybody has a gospel they're proclaiming, whether they're Muslim, whatever. And so, what am I? And this has been really hard for me to like look at my life and think, what am I gospeling for? But I really appreciate what you said. And and that is important to understand that there is um, 
a, a lot of um, false hope mm -hmm. in the world. It's like, what is our hope? Our hope is um, that this man named Jesus is who he says he was, the very son of God, that he is God in the flesh, that he came into the world, he descended to be with us because he loved us so much and he could see the eternal separation between us, so he came among us. Um, God with us, Emmanuel, right? And that um, what he did was not set the political rule in order. He didn't solve world hunger. He didn't bring a cessation of hostility in the world. Rather, what he brought was God to humanity. And that he, he helped me understand how much God loved me to the point where he would take the very thing that separates me from him. And he would take that upon himself and take it out of the way. I couldn't do it. He did it. Because of who he is. And that I know that that's true because God's spirit is in my heart. He cries out to me. Uh, in a way that makes me yearn for him, makes me yearn for righteousness. We were talking about that on Friday night, right? And that my hope is based on him. It isn't based on my good works, which is what Paul said in chapter 2, right? It's based upon the grace of God, not a God that is unapproachable like Allah, but a God who is imminent with me. And that... This so profoundly affects me that everything that was a, uh, put me in chains, everything that made me a prisoner, I have been set free. Regardless of whether I am in chains in this world, the chains that bound my spirit have been, been removed. I actually have a hope that is him. He is my hope. That's different. That's a, that's a good news. That's a gospel. And when people hear that, a lot of people will say, wow, I've never heard that before. Um, we were reading the, the missionary reports for one of our missionaries overseas, and I won't speak his name because it's on the internet, but um, he was reporting that as he's sharing the good news of life in Jesus Christ, that people of different faiths and different gospels we're saying, wow, I've never heard that before. So that's what we're called to do, right? We are called <clears throat> first to him, right? That we have to be in accord, in unity with God. And then we are called to be in unity with the church. And the church is not the people who dress right, take a shower, got a job, um, the church are those that have been set free in Jesus Christ. And so you can actually, and, and <clears throat> I'm going to say this because I, seriously, I work right next to the Morrison Bridge and there's a tent city underneath the Morrison Bridge. There's tent cities all over yeah. Portland and the homeless problem, they're trying to figure out what do we do? You know, we got an election year, so we got to say we're going to do something about this because it's, it's everywhere and it's affecting everyone today. In Portland and uh, and in Vancouver as well, 
And so I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, okay, I used to do street ministry, and it's hard. It, it takes a lot of energy trying to meet the needs of these people. But the greatest need is the need to be set free, to have those chains removed. Because what happens when those chains are removed? What happens when a person comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ? I've seen that, too. And what I've seen is, wow, all of a sudden, they start dressing differently and taking showers and getting jobs, kind of the things that you were thinking about, because they recognize that to be an effective witness in the world, they need to be on the outside what has happened on the inside. That's truthfulness. Truthfulness. And we also call that integrity, right? Where the inside and the outside person... Are this are in accord? There's no no difference. You're not different, and you're not a poser, right? Um, that's truthfulness. That is one of the essential truths about, or one of the essential characteristics about Christianity. Not a religion, a way of life, and that's why Paul emphasizes the truth in here, and he emphasizes this love, this hope this faith that we have, the truth in Christ that affects us not just as a cerebral activity in our head, but actually translates us to us being truthful, to living truth in our lives. Now, When Jesus is uh, nailing the Pharisees, you know, these are guys who have lots of truth in their head. Right. It hadn't migrated about 12 inches south. And that's why he nails them for, he said, you make a show of long prayers, and then you go out and you steal from widows and orphans. You know, these were guys who, they, they knew the ethic, but they didn't live the ethic. Yep. And that's, that's why Paul, after explaining who we are in Christ, this grace that has been lavished upon us, by our loving Father, where He would make us part of His kingdom. We have a, an inheritance. All of this stuff, the language that He was using to help inform us about our identity in Christ, He's saying, you need to live it. Mm-hmm. And that's why He's going to spend now almost three chapters talking about how we live it. Not that He's going to divorce Himself from theology, but He's going to show us how theology goes to ethic, how it goes to how we behave in the world. And some of the aspects of this are humility. We'll, we'll drill down on that one next week. That was really scary. Um, gentleness, patience, tolerance for one another in love. Right? There's, there's a whole lot that uh, in this imperative to us, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And I'm out of time, as my wife is pointing out. <laughs> so we, must, we, we obviously have not unpacked this, because there's some theological pieces in here that he wants us to understand that, that empower our ethic. But we've kind of focused on this first, uh, first bullet here. Uh, live your call focused on unity, living 
worthy of your calling, keeping the unity of the Spirit. And we're going to kind of continue in this as we move through next week, and I will apologize in advance. I may be gone next week. Um, I have a, I have to be in Washington, D.C. I have to be there tomorrow, but I also have to be there next week, and the only way I can get there at 8 o'clock in the morning is to leave Sunday. So I'm not sure what time my flight leaves. If I'm able to make it, I'll be here, but I don't think that I'm going to. So we might have to miss a week, but uh, somebody will fill in, and I'm not sure who it will be. Um, but we will pick up with this, and we will unpack it, because what you've been asking, Tim, is the, the vital question. How do, we, how do we know what the good work is, and how do we do that? Right? So that's where we're going to pick up. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come to your word um, with humbleness and, and uh, lowliness. Uh, Lord, we know nothing apart from you. Everything that is true and good is revealed from you and is about you. And Lord, help us to see that. Help us to dwell on who you are, who we are in you, what you've done, your grace which has been lavished upon us. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for the work that you've done in our life, the work that you're doing in our life right now, and the work that is yet to be done. We know that you are working constantly to perfect and mature us in Christ, that we are to grow up into him, and that we are to be imitators of him. And Lord, help us to to do that this day and in all of the days going forward. Um, Lord, we need for that both your revelation and the empowering of your spirit to, to act upon that, Lord, and to challenge us when we don't. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your provision for us and your protection of us in this dangerous world. And, uh, Lord, for your incredible service to us. Help us to be servants as your servants. You are a servant. Lord, help us to learn how to wash feet as you washed feet as an example for us. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.